0: Hello and welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand how the other side thinks. Our mission is to make government contracts better one contract at a time. Join us today and learn about the different types of contract incentives and why it's so important for both government and industry to understand what is really being incentivized. All right, let's get started. Hey, Kevin. Today, we're going to talk about incentive contracts.
1: We are. Incentive contracts are complicated. They can cost you a lot of time and money if you do them wrong, and performance can be a train wreck afterwards if you don't understand them. So let's go through this. <laughs> All
0: right. What are we talking about today? Incentive contracts. This is the, this is the good part. There, you have to think about the contract type continuum to understand how incentive contracts fit. So on the extreme of one side, there's a firm fixed price contract where the contractor has full responsibility for the performance costs and whether they make any money or, or lose money. It says, deliver me one of these for this much money. Boom, done. On the far other side of the continuum is a cost reimbursement contract. This is where the contractor has minimal responsibility in air quotes for the performance costs, and you negotiate up front what – What is your estimate of the total cost, and you put a ceiling on that, and you are going to earn a fixed amount of profit for that. Along the way, as you're performing the contract, if you spend less or more, you get that same amount of profit. So I've roughly described, in enough detail for this episode, (laughs) what a fixed price and what cost reimbursement is.
1: What is an incentive contract? Incentive contracts, there are three, they're in between those two, right? So there are three basic things you can incentivize. There's cost, the savings of the cost to be shared, potentially, may or may not be shared. How much cost are we saving? You can incentivize that. You can also incentivize performance. Incentives to motivate better performance, for example, would be a performance and will define better any way you want in the contract. And then the third type is you can incentivize delivery, and the idea being that incentivize someone to deliver faster, or in a different quantity, et cetera. But again, you can specify that. But the three things you can actually incentivize are cost, performance, and delivery.
0: We start thinking about incentive contracts early in the process. So to link this to our acquisition time zones, zone one, requirement zone, two, market research zone, three, RFP zone, zone four, the source selection zone. In the market research zone, in zone two is when you first should start thinking about whether incentives make sense for this. They get locked in during the RFP zone, and then, of course, you deal with the consequences for good or bad when you get to the execution zones. And
1: let's, let's foot stomp for a second that the sooner in this process the communication about whether or not incentive contracts make sense, foot stomp, market research zone, the sooner you start that, the better off you're going to be.
0: Okay, it's far time. Yay! Let's read our quote from the far. Where does incentive contracts live in the far? It's it's far sixteen dot four oh one, and this tells you when it's appropriate to use incentives. And the the I'm, I don't want to read this exactly, but it pretty much says when fixed price is not appropriate, and you think that you can achieve one of those. Goals that you just talked about, lower cost, improved delivery terms, better technical performance. You think you can achieve one of those or all of those by adding incentives to it. 16.401A says that you're going to relate the amount of profit or fee payable under the contract to the contractor's actual performance, and performance can be any one of those three things. Again, cost, delivery, technical – Incentive contracts are designed to help you meet these acquisition objectives. In order to do that, 16401A1 says establishing reasonable and attainable targets that are clearly communicated to the contractor. How do you do – how do you establish reasonable and attainable targets and make sure that they're clearly communicated? It's like you just said, Kevin. You have to talk. Industry and, and government have to talk great time to do this. During the market research zone, before you have everything locked down in the RFP, let's talk about what, what is a reasonable target? What can industry do? What can they not do? And make sure that that's what your contract is incentivizing.
1: And one thing to add on to that is if the first time the incentive shows up is in the RFP, in the final RFP, that creates a Whirlwind, I guess we'll say a, a, a giant pile, say it that way, a giant pile of questions from industry. Because now, and, all, and by the way, all those questions then have to be answered publicly. So do not ever wait do <laughs> until not. the final RFP, <laughs> yeah. do not ever wait until the final RFP to put the news i guess we'll say it that way out to the to the contractors that this is going to be an incentive type contract because you're going to get an crazy amount of questions and you're going to have to answer all of them because the final rfp is out so think about that kind of thing again earlier let them know at a a minimum as a draft rfp because if they say yeah we don't want to incentivize that or or hey we're going to lose money if you incentivize it that way you got to find that out now don't wait until after
0: rfp (laughs) so we're still in the far part of the conversation here Sixteen four hundred one a2 says you're going to help you're going to obtain your accusi- acquisition objectives by including appropriate incentive arrangements that are designed to motivate contractor efforts that might not otherwise be emphasized. Do you have an, do you have an example for when you might do that?
1: I, I do. And so the simplest way to think of this is you have a product that you need to replace and that product is costing you 5 bucks a day to maintain. And So when a new product that you're now doing a source selection for, you've awarded a contract for, and that, that, that new product is going to replace the old product, and you want to incentivize the contractor to give you a, a faster delivery of the new product because it's cheaper to maintain the new product than it is to maintain the old product,
0: that kind of stuff is a big deal. So the government would spend money to incentivize the contractor to deliver earlier because it's going to save them money overall – because they don't have to, to maintain the old thing yet. So the next part of this particular FAR passage, 16401A2, and then... FAR passage? Two, just two, two, far two, passage? two little eyes. It's 2 I, I. That's just hard. It's hard to describe without seeing it. Incentive arrangements should discourage contractor inefficiency and waste. A simple example of that is a cost-type contract where the contractor may be incentivized to spend all of the cost... In order to keep their workforce working, you want to save money as the government, so you set up a cost-sharing incentive where if the estimated cost for the contract is $100 and the contractor delivers what they're supposed to deliver and they've only spent $90, you set up some arrangement where you share some of that $10 that was not spent where the government keeps some of it, and the contractor gets the rest in the way of profit. Let's move on to the last piece of this part of the FAR, 401 C. Tells you that there's two basic categories of incentive contracts. You can do incentives on fixed price contracts and on cost type contracts. The FAR prefers that you use fixed price incentive contracts because then industry shares some of the cost risk. Let's talk about different types of incentives, give some examples of these things. So, the first thing that I'd like to mention is not actually a contract incentive, but Options. We've talked about options on contracts. An option to extend the term of the contract or an option to deliver more of something. It's not actually called an incentive, but it is an incentive. If the government is happy with their product, what they're getting, they, will exer- they can exercise an option to get more of that. If they're not happy, they're not going to exercise the option. So it is an incentive, but it's not in this part of the FAR.
1: It's a technical difference, but it's actually correct. So here's one that actually is a specifically is an incentive award fee. Award fee is subjective. It's subject. It requires an award fee plan. It's a subjective way to give a company additional fee. Then there's award term. An award term basically says we're going to give you an additional years or additional amount of quantity on this contract. So the simple example would be a five-year contract, and there's an award term. If you perform well enough, we add you know, two years, two option years, that kind of thing. That's objective or subjective, meaning they say if you meet these metrics, then you get two more years, or if we decide you do a good enough job, you get two more years. So that one can go either way. Then there's cost sharing, which which Paul, you mentioned a minute ago, yeah. as far as how individual costs are shared. It's kind of simple. It's, it is what it sounds like.
0: Savings are shared between the government and the industry, is what I was trying to say. There you go. It's, Better way to say it.
1: And then performance bonus is another type. So, for example, you say, I need this item to weigh five pounds, but I'll pay you a little bit more if it comes in at four pounds because that's, it's a threshold versus objective kind of conversation, which I don't want to get sucked down that rabbit hole, but you get the basic strategy. Is you're getting an additional bonus of some sort for performing a little bit better. And it, you could define that better any way you want in the contract. And the last example we'll kick through is the delivery incentives it's essentially you deliver faster. So this, think of this in terms of, if you know what liquidated damages are, liquidated damages is, is every day that you're late, it costs X. So an you know, example would be if you're building a building for every day that, it, that you're late, you're going to give you know, $5,000, uh, you're going to lose $5,000 in profit. All right? So that's liquidated damages, is that you have a, you have a negative incentive to, to deliver on time. A delivery incentive in this case, it's the opposite of liquidated damages, meaning that instead of penalizing you for being late, I'm going to incentivize you for being early, and that's what a delivery incentive looks like. And again, you can put that on delivering a product faster, You can do, del, you can do that on delivering in different quantities in there's a, it's wide open, but <laughs> the basic idea is you're doing something faster.
0: In each case, these incentives need to be able to be defined, and they need to be valuable. And most importantly, they need to be trackable. It needs to be something that both sides understand how we're going to evaluate whether or not you've met whatever criteria there are in order to receive this incentive. Don't forget that the more complicated you make these incentive criteria, the more administration that it requires. So the complexity drives a lot of confusion into the process, gets a lot more people potentially. Make sure that you understand what you're getting into. For example... I bought satellites. The technical performance incentives on satellites required some kind of advanced math degree and probably an engineering degree just to to get an idea of what they're talking about. When it came time to calculate these things, it took a team of people on both sides, on, on the industry and the government side, to run the calculations and agree on whether or not those calculations are correct before you can even apply them to the incentives. This ain't always easy. I've worked a, bl- a lot of award fee contracts. And not only do you have to write an award fee plan up, up front, then you have to administer that plan. And it, it requires a lot of people. In the case of, a, of an Air Force award fee contract for a system, a general was the, uh, the fee determining official. So imagine all the people it took that you had to get through before you could brief the general and get a decision.
1: In some cases, I mean, it's a billion-dollar contract. It's worth it. But if you're not at that stage, it's not really going to be worth it. So <laughs> think about that kind of stuff before you spend your time on this. It's a great idea if you do it simply. And by the way, you don't have to spend weeks on that. You just got to think about what, how complex is this process going to be, and is it going to be, you can only incentivize two things, and that's all you're going to be briefing the fee determining official on. In our case, we had you know, metrics all over the place, kind of like your, your story with the uh, satellite. It, it can get crazy in a hurry. So
0: flee from complexity. <laughs> and it, which leads me right to, because of perceived abuse of incentive and award fees, and the what I think is just, they got so complex that they almost became useless. But because of that, the FAR actually says that a determination finding has to be signed by the head of the contracting activity. So this is somebody pretty high in the chain. They have to sign... a document that justifies the use of an incentive or award fee kind of contract. It has to say it's in the best interest of the government. So somebody high up in the chain, somebody important on the government side has to say it's worth all this extra administration to do this. And that – I'm sure that that's now in the far to make it less fun to do an award or incentive fee contract. I think people are just throwing them out there without thinking of all the ramifications and all the work they cause – as a result, the FAR now just lightly discourages the use of them by making you get somebody important to approve it. So why is it important to understand contract incentives?
1: For me, this is a creativity that's built into the FAR. We talk about the thinking part of contracting. This is a great example of that, is that understand what you're really signing up for, because incentives is, it's, you have lots and lots of options, and with Lots and lots of options comes lots and lots of things to overcomplicate. What else can it do?
0: So the law of unintended consequences really applies to incentives. So also remember, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So, So there's lots of laws that apply here. The incentives actually compete with each other. And they compete with rational behavior. And what I mean by that is, if you have a cost incentive and a performance incentive you can't get both the lowest cost and the best performance it's very unlikely that those two things are aligned from an incentive perspective so which one wins out
1: that you're kind of in a faster better cheaper pick two or maybe even pick one you can you can't incentivize all three of those and so think of it this way is that and we, we may have talked about this graphic before but think of the, the cost schedule and performance as a triangle and so when you each each corner of the triangle is one of those three every time you move one of those corners you change the shape of the triangle so that's what we mean by them interreacting is it makes it makes it very hard for all three sides of the triangle to remain the same length <laughs> if you're
0: moving them around and because of that back to another far reference i know we've talked about had lots of farry things in here Sixteen four hundred two 16402-1 actually says no incentive contract may provide for other incentives without also providing a cost incentive or constraint and the reason that's there is if you have incentives to motivate better performance you're going to get better performance but if there's no cost constraint on there you'll also blow your budget right away because the contractor industry is only motivated to give you that better performance to make more money if you're paying the cost, they don't care how much it costs you.
1: Yeah, this goes under the rule of given unlimited time and unlimited money, anything's possible. <laughs> so the example the example would be if you say, I want this motorcycle to go 100 miles an hour, but you don't tie some cost to that. Well, they're going to keep spending money until it happens. And it, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's why that's in there. Now, the other side of this is when it says constraint, because the, the language of it is providing a cost incentive or constraint. The constraint refers to a firm fixed price. So what what we're talking about right here is if it's a cost type contract and, and, and you're only incentivizing performance and they're gonna spend the money until they hit the performance incentive. But on a firm fixed price contract, they the contractor's not gonna perform at a loss. <laughs> so that they're basically and this is again, this is a communication thing, is you don't sign up to meeting an incentive that you can't meet unless you lose money. The and fixed price knowing where that line is. Yeah, for a fixed Price one. And knowing where that line is is very important for both sides to understand because guess what? In the contract administration part of this whole exercise, if this, converse, this awkward conversation wasn't had in the pre-award when, when a post-award contract admin shows up, all of a sudden the contractor says, dude, I can't, sh- I can't meet this objective and lose money. And then you know, the first time that conversation happens should not be after the contract's already awarded. So there you go.
0: If you're on the government side, you have to remember that contractors are going to assess how to maximize profit, regardless of the government's goals for the incentives. So the, the industry will meet the requirements of the contracts, but they'll do it in the way that makes them the most money. And this leads us perfectly to why does the government care about contracts incentives?
1: Government cares because it forces the focus on what really matters, or or it should, right? And it provides or or should provide clarity on what your goals and needs are.
0: if you do it so, right, it does,
1: and, yeah it really does and and yes, if it's done properly, you may actually pay in fact, I say if it's done right, if it 's done correctly, you will pay less and get better service if it 's not done correctly, then you end up with another mess. However, you can get better performance and reward great performance. so the idea and what I mean by that is that when, when you say, "I want this thing to weigh, i 'll settle for it weighing five pounds." but I really want it to weigh four pounds. Well, what happens if it ends up at four and a half, right? That's good performance. And you may end up with a four pound uh, solution. So again, that's a simple example, but you get the idea. So it gives you the ability to get better performance and reward that performance, which turns into profit, right? So the contractor cares about it. However, <laughs> if you don't do this right, you could also spend a lot of time administering and end up in the same place. And I'm not trying to say that this is a horrible idea, I'm saying it's a horrible idea if you don't think through what you want to do with it.
0: Yeah, I I think you're dead on there. Done correctly, incentives are a very powerful way to reward the contractor for doing more of what you want. Done incorrectly, incentives are a time and money drain that focus the contractor on the wrong things. And that's back to the, the law of unintended consequences.
1: So why does industry care?
0: <laughs> industry cares because this is how they make more profit or, or any profit in some cases, if it's an award fee contract. If you're on the industry side, you need to make sure that the incentives in the contract are actually aligned with delivering what the customer wants. How do you do that? Lots of early conversation, early and often, have these conversations. It is again. <laughs> yeah. If you don't make sure that the incentives are aligned with what the customer actually wants from a cost technical performance standpoint, your program is gonna be a mess when these conflicts arrive between how you maximize profitability for the program and how you make the customer happy. You need to know your customer's priority and make sure it matches what they've incentivized in the contract. If that's done properly, Your focus on profitability exactly matches what really matters to the customer from a cost, delivery, or technical performance standpoint. If you're on the government side, make sure that the incentives match what industry can actually do. Don't expect that you can incentivize somebody to deliver something next week that takes six months to manufacture. Have these conversations early and make sure that you understand the capabilities of the industry in regard to the, what you're trying to incentivize and how you're trying to incentivize it. If you do that early on, you can really match these things up and it's a win-win. If you don't do that, you're going to end up with incentives that no one wants to sign up for because they're meaningless. So in conclusion, government
1: can, can provide more clarity of their goals and their needs with incentives. When done properly, they really do work.
0: An industry can actually make more profit with these incentives if they're property, properly aligned.
1: Exactly. And here's the trick. Know what you're signing up for. These are not easy to administer. Uh, incentive contracts, they can be a powerful way to encourage contractor behavior. But it's for better or but, for
0: worse. That You yeah, can well encourage said. contractor behavior to do exactly what you want, or you can encourage contractor behavior to... Make the most money, even though that means not meeting the goals the way that you had envisioned them. So make sure you understand what you're driving the industry to do through the incentives.
1: Yeah, and that is caused by, wait for it, communication. you got to be talking about If you understand, preferably before the RFP drops, but definitely before there's a contract award of, are are you squeezing a balloon and do you know what it looks like when you squeeze it? That's such such a big thing we talk about on the podcast, and this is yet another example of why it's important.
0: That's a great place to wrap it up, Kevin. So thanks for joining us today. If you like the CO podcast, we ask you, please tell a friend. If you're listening to the podcast during your commute, if you're at a red light and you have a chance, grab your phone, text a friend, tell them about the CO podcast. Don't forget that we want to hear what you want to hear about. If you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to know more about, go to the Contracting Officer Podcast website, ContractingOfficerPodcast.com, hit the contact button, let us know what you think. Remember, if you need help with the government market, you can join the Skyway Connection community.
1: Go to SkywayAcquisition.com slash connect, and you can use the promo code podcast to try it free for a while. Also, we're going to start doing free webinars. So go to SkywayAcquisition.com slash free webinar, and you'll be able to, to really see inside the community and we, we run them continuously, so you'll be able to see what, where you can get help. And that's it for this one. Have a good day.
0: <laughs> Talk to you see later, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. As always, if you have questions, comments, or complaints, send me an email at paul at ContractingOfficerPodcast.com.